Welcome to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast, where AOPA's legal and medical certification staff, along with leading industry voices, take on the challenges and developments that all pilots deal with. From staying out of trouble with the FAA, to becoming a better pilot, to staying healthy so you can stay in the left seat longer. Welcome to our Flying Well podcast. I'm Dr. Jonathan Stack here, and I'm proud to contribute the Flying Well columns in the AOPA Pilot Magazine, as well as our online services. And today I'm joined by my good friend Gary Crump, Director of Medical Certification at AOPA. He is safely ensconced in an office. I, however, am on the road traveling, unfortunately, traveling with the great unwashed, so I don't have the peace. Uh, of an FBO, I'm in an airport uh, in a quiet corner, so I hope the background noise is is not disturbing to anyone. Today we're going to discuss a rather serious matter, mental health issues. There's an old joke that goes, uh, there are four doctors standing around and one says, you know, one in four people will have a serious mental health problem. I'm fine, so one of you is the problem. But, you know, it's no laughing matter. In society as a whole, we need to be alert to the threat and look for signs in those we love to try and head problems off quickly. I have to tell you that this hits me very personally. My oldest friend in the world lost his 25-year-old son this time last year to suicide, brought on by using that wretched drug, ecstasy. So I know firsthand how devastating such problems can be. But as pilots, there's another element. Being charged of an aeroplane while potentially affected by depression or something else, threatens the lives of others, as tragic events in the news have shown us. And we all know that the FAA can be a, a very large bureaucracy, but it does exist to keep the, uh, the airspace safe for all of us. Gary, do you have any overarching comments to make first of all, and then let's talk through some of the specific issues. Yeah, for sure, Jonathan. Obviously, the FAA's mandate is to preserve the safety of the national airspace system and the Office of Aerospace Medicine takes that responsibility really seriously and that's why they're perceived sometimes as being overly conservative. I'll be the first to confess that sometimes I think the FAA is overly conservative in some respects, but at the same time I try to put myself in the shoes of the regulators who are making these certification decisions and I get the opportunity to talk with them on a fairly frequent basis about all kinds of certification issues, but certainly mental health is certainly one of the biggest concerns that they have. Cardiac, neurological conditions, and mental health conditions probably are the top three medical conditions that really concern the regulators on an international basis, not just the FAA, but everybody. So and now in the, in the world where we're seeing so much uh, PTSD, for one example, and the, the incidence of acts commission that certainly could be attributable to mental health issues, including substance abuse, and substance dependence. It's a growing concern for the FAA, and it, it really creates a big dilemma for the FAA because obviously they have to err on the side of safety. But finding that, that happy medium or that at least that balance between what can we safely certify and what do we really need to keep an eye on really makes their job very difficult when it comes to dealing with some of these mental health issues. Thanks for that, Gary. Can we, can we first of all talk about people who don't have enduring mental health problems? Pretty much all of us, basically. We all have days in our lives when we've been stressed, something bad has happened, we're upset, our head's not in the right place, or it's the anniversary uh, of an event, 
or it's a holiday, at which time prior problems and pains can come to the surface. I mean, look, I'll be very honest. I went through uh, some life changes, and there were days where I would go out to the airplane. It was beautiful weather outside. The plane checked out. Everything was great. The weather was fabulous. Got in the airplane, and just as I'm about to fire her up, I remember I'm safe, and... You know, that wonderful acronym we use to think, am I safe to be flying this airplane? And I put the plane back in the hangar because I thought, I'm not really, my head's not in this. My, my, I don't have the brain space to fly an airplane. Can you talk a little bit about that and how important it is and how important it is to keep our egos in check as pilots? Because not that we have big egos, of course. But of course. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, I... I've been doing this a long time, and, and it seems like every time I talk about this, I always bring up the one regulation that we all have to pay attention to, and, and we've talked about it uh, before, and we'll probably talk about it every single podcast and webinar that we've ever done, and, and that's FAR 6153. That's the regulation that puts the burden on us as pilots in command or as required flight crew members to make the determination that we are, in fact, safe to fly before we, before we climb into the airplane. The I'm safe checklist, illness, medication, stress, alcohol, fatigue, emotion, stress, and emotion play right into this. So uh, you're, you're exactly right. Us general aviation pilots, and it's not something we have to go out to fly to make a living. I think that's a bigger challenge for the airlines or a lot of commercial pilots that really, you know, their paycheck depends on their making the trip. And that creates some significant stressors right there in itself. But for, for most of us that, that have, the, have the option to make the decision, I've done the same thing that you have, Jonathan. I've you know, brought the airplane out, done the checklist, and uh, did the walk around, and uh, decided, nope, I just don't feel like doing it today. So there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with putting the airplane back in the hangar and live to fly another day. So let's, let's move on and talk about true medical depression. You know, reactive depression we all know about, and that's you're reacting to something bad in your life or a bad situation that you're in, a job or a, a relationship, money, whatever it might be. But then there's inherent depression, which is, it's an illness. You know, if you're worried about stuff, you'll have difficulty going to sleep at night. But if you've got reactive, you're true depression, you'll wake up early in the morning and it, some of the, the, the symptoms are counterintuitive. But true depression is a major problem, and it can be treated by expert medical professionals with medication, some of which FAA allows patients with a diagnosis of depression to fly whilst taking those medications. Can you talk a bit about that, Gary? Yeah. Actually, the FAA, back, I believe it was like uh, 2013, uh, yeah, right. finally created a policy that allowed pilots to fly can, to be considered for any class of medical uh, if they were using one of four of the SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That involves a process now through the what's called the HEMS program, and I don't, I don't want to get involved in a long discussion about that, but HEMS uh, is the Human Intervention Motivational Study that was created by the FAA and the Airline Pilots Association back in the early 1970s to assist professional pilots, mostly airline pilots, who had been diagnosed with uh, alcohol abuse or alcohol dependence to get rehabilitated and get back in the cockpit, usually within about nine months. And that program has been tremendously successful and it continues to this day. But when the FAA created the policy to allow the SSRIs to be considered, 
they incorporated some of the uh, tenets of the HEMS program, and now pilots are uh, being considered and under review and under uh, evaluation for a special issuance medical using these medications are doing so under the, the guidelines established by the HEMS program. So, you know, the good news is it is possible to get a medical certificate with uh, depression treatment. The bad news is that it, it is a time-consuming process, again, getting back to what we said earlier about the complexity of uh, mental health evaluation. So, And a lot of it is attributable to the FAA's constant backlog of cases because of resource problems. They just have more cases they can handle with that that they have to do it. But that's a, we can maybe do a whole discussion about that sometime. It is a little bit comprehensive. It's kind of expensive, too. In fact, it's very expensive because of the consultation have to be done. But the, the good news is that it is possible. It just uh, takes a lot of persistence, diligence, and it takes a, uh, a concerted effort on the part of the airmen to be compliant with driving uh, and staying on the medications and uh, working with the FAA to jump through all the hoops. Yeah. So I'd like to move on and talk about a condition um, that a lot of parents are dealing with nowadays, especially in kids who are going through puberty and they notice a change in them and they end up getting diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And many of these kids are treated with medications to allow them to focus, most of them which are amphetamine-like and are stimulants. I have pretty pronounced views about this, which I don't think I should get into here. I think I think we're probably over-diagnosing this and I think we're medicating way too many people. But, you know, Denial may be a river in Egypt, um, if you'll forgive the old pun, but it's no place in any kind of mental illness discussion. And I have to tell you, Gary, I've overheard at least two conversations where a pilot was, to a pilot was talking about their attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and the result of medication use. And one of those pilots was a military pilot flying an extremely expensive piece of, uh, of metal. FAA is pretty clear on this, but... If someone comes along and is carrying that diagnosis from childhood, surely one of the first things that should be done is to confirm that that's actually what they've got and then ascertain if they need medications. But if they need medications, they shouldn't be flying an aeroplane, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. In our experience, we talk with a lot of parents who have, uh, who have concerns about their kids not doing well in school. They disrupt the class. They just can't stay focused. And so I consider a lot of these diagnoses, a diagnosis of convenience, and not that that's not to be derogatory, but in many cases, a primary care physician that sees a lot of these kids will just try to assuage the parents' concerns and just suggest, well, we can put you on medication and see if that helps. And that, you know, that makes the parents feel better. Uh, kids may not do so well because the medications do have side effects, a lot, especially for these kids that really don't have ADHD medicating a, a, a condition that doesn't really exist. And many times, you know, they, they get a little older, they mature, they get out of high school, they don't have all the social pressures from uh, middle school or high school, and they go into college and they do well, they excel, they, they, they keep their GPAs up, and they don't take medication anymore, and uh, they never had ADHD in the first place. But I agree with you, I think it's grossly overdiagnosed. And uh, unfortunately, there are tools out there, there are evaluations that can be done primarily probably by psychiatrists or clinical psychologists that are specifically targeted through what's called sensitivity and specificity to identify the pathology of ADHD. And most of these kids, or at least many of them that we talk to, are not ever really formally diagnosed. And 
these evaluations and they're treated empirically with medications. And then, you know, for some people it, it helps, others it doesn't do anything at all. But once that stigma is there, one of the questions on the medical application on the med- under the mental health issues is specifically addresses ADHD. So whether they've been diagnosed with it or not, if they've been told that they have it and have been treated for it, it becomes uh, a, a challenge then at that point because the FAA is going to require a fairly elaborate neurocognitive and neuropsychological evaluation to identify or determine if there is ADHD or if there are any other underlying learning disabilities that mask by the presenting symptoms of ADHD. So it's a, it's a really very complicated diagnosis to make, but uh, FAA does not allow any of the medications and uh, with the diagnosis, you got to be able to demonstrate that if you don't have it or it's well enough controlled that you can pass the neurocognitive evaluations without the use of medication. Yeah, excellent. So, you know, the next topic is, is I think we can just cover very briefly, but just to hammer home a point, alcohol is unfortunately still a factor, still a factor in a number of aircraft accident fatalities. And of course, just like drunk driving, consuming booze not only impairs one's ability to control a plane, it impairs your ability to know that you're impaired. So we've discussed this before, but as long as pilots are drinking and flying, we need to keep the topic front and center. Such behaviors are probably reflective of an underlying issue of merit medical help. It's probably not something you hear a lot of in the pilot um, uh, services center, Gary, but you know, do, do you agree with me? Is this something that we can't brush out under the carpet. We have to be responsible, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, between us and our compatriots over on the legal side in the Pilot Protection Services Legal Services. We still deal uh, with a lot of DOI calls. In fact, I was just at a uh, major international medical meeting here just a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas, and one of the talks from one of the FAA docs was on drugs and alcohol, and he was explaining their certification policy depending upon how many DUIs you had, what your blood alcohol was, and all those all those details that play into the evaluation. And his job is pretty much all he does is drug and alcohol cases, and he is buried all the time. So there's no diminishing number of pilots who are getting into, into problems with uh, drinking and driving. And uh, obviously, it's a major issue for the FAA, and they've really cracked down a lot over the last 20 years, for sure, primarily because of some input from both Congress and National Transportation Safety Board that coriated the FAA years ago for not being as thorough as they were in screening out uh, or identifying people with alcohol use problems. So it's still a big deal, and uh, unfortunately, we still take those calls all the time. I, I want to thank you very much for, for, for joining me and spending time today. You know, Gary, one of our obligations as pilots is to look after one another and keep your eye on people that you know, certainly fellow pilots, but also people in your families. I mean, the, the young man that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, Elliot, who, who died nearly a, a year ago, I spent time with him and I didn't ask him about drug use. I know his parents did, but he didn't talk to his parents. Maybe he would have talked to me. So talk to people that you know, and if you see signs that things aren't right in their life, help them get help, because this is a disease that doesn't just afflict the patient, it causes immense dis-ease in everyone around them. So Gary, first of all, thank you very much for joining today and for your expert opinion. And I'd like to finish with a quote from one of my favorite poets, Wilfred Owen, 
he documented the tragedy of the Great War. And you think about that. Part, um, soldiers during the Great War uh, who were shell-shocked, as they said, they were often shot for desertion. Today, we would say that they had a traumatic brain injury that was inducing personality change because we understand more about it. Wilfred Owen saw this firsthand and documented it in a poem called Mental Cases. And the lines go, start with, who are these? Why sit they here in twilight? Wherefore rock they? Purgatorial shadows. Let's not leave our friends, relatives, loved ones in the shadows. Let's help bring them out and shine light on the problem and help people lead happier, healthy lives and be happier and healthier pilots. So, Gary, thank you once again. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for uh, inviting me to participate. It's been fun, and uh, hopefully it's been educational. And uh, I hope everyone flies well. I've got to go and fly on the airlines, so I don't know how well that's going to be. But thanks a lot, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast. We'll be back soon with more of your favorite topics and guests in general aviation. Pilot Protection Services is available only to AOPA members, and over 64,000 of those members choose to protect their certificates with PPS. It's a service we're proud to provide. Fly safe, and we'll see you soon.